Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer. And now we know, it is, as the numbers always said it was going to be, uh, the fourth overall pick for the Red Wings in the 2020 NHL Draft. I'm sure not the most pleasant uh, viewing experience for most of you out there, especially now that a placeholder, uh, playoff, play-in, however you want to put it, team uh, is going to be picking number one. Prashanth, what is your, uh, it's not quite immediate reaction, but your your 14 hours later reaction. Yeah, I mean, I had to, I had to sleep this one off because obviously... You know, you, you knew going in that it was a 50.6% chance that the Red Wings were going to pick fourth overall. And that's kind of what we've said the entire year is, hey, prep yourself for picking fourth overall. And, and sure enough, you know, the cards start flipping. Uh, you know, right away, we know that there's at least one team that's won a pick because the, the lottery starts at eight instead of at seven. Um, so you're instantly prepared for that. Uh, and of course, Detroit has to drop the maximum number of spots. Uh, you know, as is draft day tradition. So uh, Detroit falls to four. You get, you know, a couple teams that jump up. Obviously, L.A. being able to jump into the two spot is huge. Ottawa jumping into the three spot. And then, of course, you have a placeholder to be named uh, winning first overall. And so it's actually back-to-back years because later it came out, I think, that it was Team E which is where the Blackhawks draft slot was last year. And they vaulted into the, the top three last year to take Kirby Dock. Team E again pulls off that lottery magic and, and now has the rights to Alexi Lafreniere, uh, win it, whichever of those eight teams loses. And then the even more fun wrinkle is if the NHL can't resume uh, play, then those eight teams that were worst, that were not a part of the lottery initially, uh, so the teams that would be basically 17 through 24th in the NHL standings, uh, those eight teams in inverse order are going to get each a one and eight shot at getting that first overall pick. So quite the consolation prize for teams like Montreal, the Rangers and, and the Blackhawks that all got roped into playing in this uh, this extra lottery um, for before the playoffs. Yeah, if I have uh, two takeaways from this, well, I guess I'll go to three. Number one, I'm naming my fantasy team's placeholder Team E for the foreseeable future in hopes of getting the number one pick. Number two, uh, for as much as I've seen people saying this is like a bad look for the NHL, this is objectively a good thing for the NHL. They, you know, the the most fitting image of the night was them turning over a number one overall pick card with their own logo on it because now they get to have a second lottery uh, with a bunch of, of teams that were, you know, their, their fan bases will be engaged, fresh off of these uh, zombie postseason play-in games, and they get to have it for the number one overall pick. Uh, I, you know, I get that it's kind of optically, you know, unpleasant, especially for the fan bases who lost, but for the NHL, this has to be considered uh, a good outcome in terms of in- engagement in that next lottery. And then number three, obviously, is from a Red Wings standpoint, the Red Wings, it's its a really tough draw. I know everyone had been kind of emotionally preparing themselves for it, which was the smart thing to do. This was what the numbers said was going to happen. But it's a really tough draw. This was a draft that had, was starting to emerge with, with what I would call close to a consensus top three with Alexi Lafreniere, Quentin Byfield, and Tim Stutzla. The Red Wings are probably not going to get any of those guys now. And, and, and what they are going to have is, and this is what I wrote last night, an absolutely massive critical decision for their rebuild because there's four, five, maybe you can even argue six directions this can go now, and it's going to have ramifications that are going to last beyond 2030. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, going into this this lottery, I think a lot of people the, have tried to make the story into... Well, you know, they're, uh, the Red Wings were coming in with the best odds, and so therefore, you know, they had the best chance. But even still, they were going to likely end up fourth overall. And and I think the, the frustrating aspect is, you know, when you go back to how this looks for the NHL, like I absolutely agree from a fan engagement standpoint, you know, they're super pumped. And, and if the NHL is unable to resume their season, which I know they're going to push really, really hard to try and do, I personally don't believe they're going to be able to do it. That means you're t- basically giving yourself – you know, a, a 38% chance that Alexi Lafreniere is in Montreal, Chicago, or New York. And and that's, again, another added caveat for the NHL. And that's just a huge piece uh, for them if you're able to take a, 
you know, potential star player right off the get go and put them in one of your biggest markets, um, especially three teams that have not been in the playoffs recently. That's again, another big win for the NHL. Um, I'm not going to go as far as to say this was a rigged lottery in any sense. That was just the way the numbers played out. Um, But it certainly looks really, really good for the NHL. Very, very disappointing for Red Wings fans. And, you know, when you come down to who's going to be available at four, um, I think obviously most of us think that uh, the Red Wings are not going to have a shot at Lafreniere. They're not going to have a shot at Byfield. They're not going to have a shot at Stutzla. I, I don't know that I'm as willing to go as far as that. I mean, sure, this might be a little bit of a charade, but uh, in the 31 Thoughts, uh, I guess, coverage after the draft last night, Rob Blake did say the Kings are going to entertain four different players at two. I think you and I have you know, briefly touched on in past episodes that the thought was the Kings were looking defense given how many different, you know, forwards they've taken in, in recent years, um, you know, with with guys like Velarde, with guys like, uh, you know, Kaliev and and other players that they've got in their pool, they, they were kind of lacking an elite defenseman. And so the thought was maybe they look Drysdale, maybe they look Sanderson. You know, we've, we've talked about some teams having them as high as three on their board. That being said, I still think that the consensus pick from them is going to be Quentin Byfield. They've definitely scouted him. Uh, a lot, but you know, don't uh, you know, hang on to at least a little bit of hope that maybe you run into a scenario where Byfield isn't the number two pick and you are potentially looking at Stutz lower Byfield at, at four. Yeah, I, I think what's and, and I think what's more likely though is that they would take Byfield or Stutzla, and if, if they really feel just overwhelmed with center depth, well, then you could just trade Alex Turcotte or Gabe Velarde or Tyler Madden and, and get a defenseman that way when you have a pick that can get you a guy like Quinton Byfield, a guy like even Tim Stutzla, uh, you can't let position get in the way of that. I mean, it, I think defenseman's a fair conversation really anywhere from four on, uh, but I, I just have a hard time seeing it that high. And I, I will echo, I don't think this lottery is rigged either. And I hopefully, hopefully that came through. I just think it's a good outcome for the NHL, but, but mathematically, right? Like the most likely things to happen last night were either Ottawa at like 25%, a placeholder team at like 24.5%, and then a pretty big gap before you got to Detroit at 18.5%. So even while team E only had, I think it was two and a half percent odds to right. win this, this was an outcome that was, was math mathematically very likely and you know i think it's totally fair to criticize the lottery for allowing an outcome for a historically bad franchise to have only the third best odds of winning it but part of that is because ottawa had two picks and part of it is because we're can we're kind of you know combining the odds of of eight teams who in any other year wouldn't be combined. So it, it's a lot of weirdness. I think it's totally fair to criticize the lottery. I think it's totally fair to criticize the existence of a draft, by the way. Uh, but I, I don't think this was a huge shock. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be a huge shock. And honestly, I think the reason why more people aren't talking about how you know wide the gap in odds was between the the placeholder team and and Detroit is because Ottawa had two picks and so it's like oh well, you know Ottawa's 25% this team's 24 and a half i mean imagine if Ottawa didn't have that San Jose pick and now you're talking about random placeholder has a 24 and a half percent chance and then Detroit has an 18 and a half percent chance and then Ottawa's at like 16% as opposed to having the the odds of of both those picks and so you know, I think for me, the, the fundamental issue I took, and I've said this kind of since the NHL announced this plan, was collectively those teams were, you know, quote unquote, pooling their odds together to bring that pick into a one in eight chance for them. And so that's why when I calculated the odds straight off the get go, it was basically about a six and a half percent chance for each of those teams to walk away with Alexi Lafreniere, which is substantially better odds for teams that were, you know, in the 10 through 15 range than they've historically had. I mean, almost double the odds of landing that first overall pick. So, you know, I think that's the part that I take like the biggest umbrage with because I think that's a heck of a consolation prize. And again, I'm not going to say it's rigged, but when those extra teams you were pulling in for the NHL were Chicago, Montreal, and New York, it's a good look if one of those teams ends up with Alexi Lafreniere, because again, those are big markets. The NHL gets better ratings when those teams are in the playoffs, going far and succeeding. So um, not an ideal situation for Detroit, but it was the likely situation to happen. And that's why we've kind of said all year, you have to be ready to pick at four. 
That said, I did kind of think when I sat down to watch the lottery last night, I thought they were getting into the top three. I don't know why. It was just a weird feeling. And uh, and I have to imagine that for a fan base that just watched their team lose all but 17 games this season, like, I mean, I was already seeing it in my Twitter mentions last night and this morning. Like, people are, are really devastated by this. Yeah, I mean, this was a team that was historically awful, and the one thing that fans were hanging on to was the opportunity to to draft Alexi Lafreniere. And that, that was what people wanted uh, from the get-go. This was kind of the desired outcome. And now you're talking about a historically awful team not getting that chance to draft the best player uh, from this draft. However, I, I do think it's really, really important to, to state this. I don't think the gap between him and some of the other guys in the top five is as great as it's been discussed. I think he's surely the clear-cut you know, player you take at number one. But I don't think this is a scenario where you have a substantial gap between you know, future production between a guy like Lafreniere and guys like Byfield, Rossi, Raymond, Stutzla, Perfetti, and Holtz. I, I don't think the gap is as big as you know people think. And that's where I still think, and I've said this kind of the last couple of days, whoever Detroit drafts at four is going to instantly be, I think, their best player um, from a pure talent perspective within, you know, as soon as three to five years. Now, that's not really uh, factoring in the 2021 and the 2022 drafts, but I still think that that's going to be true, that these guys are just going to have substantially more upside than anybody on Detroit, and that includes Dylan Larkin. So I still think the Red Wings are going to walk away with a great player. I don't think the gap is as big between one and some of the other guys. But Lafreniere clearly was the, the the gem of this draft. Yeah, yeah. So where does this leave Detroit? I mean, I guess that's that's what everyone who's tuning in is going to want to know. How bad is it? Where do they go from here? And who should they take? And they're they're all big questions. Yeah, uh, it's it's tough. I mean, I think at four, you know, you you and I have mocked so many different guys over the years. I think you you recently in the Athletics uh, mocked last night mocked uh, Lucas Raymond to Detroit, who's, I think, a very reasonable player to uh, to take there. I think he's arguably one of the, the highest skilled players in this draft, and and there's not as much being said about him because he didn't get a lot of minutes in the SHL this year, just, uh, you know, barely about eight, eight nine minutes a night. So uh, he's a guy that hasn't been talked about as much, but if you go watch his highlights and his mixtape, I think he's a really, really talented player there. Um, you know, assuming Stutzla is off the board, you're still left with picking a guy like Cole Perfetti, who, you know, over the last 29 games of the season was basically playing a, a two point per game pace and is one of the top 12 scorers in, OH, in the OHL um, over the last 20 years. So I think he's been an outstanding player, uh, really, really heady player, really smart, really high hockey IQ, great shot. Um, and then obviously the guy that, you know, I think you and I have talked about a lot in Marco Rossi. So I think there's at least those three forwards you're going to be able to pick from. Alexander Holtz is another guy you mocked. And then maybe Detroit gets a little bit crazy and they they go for another right-handed defenseman in Jamie Drysdale. So a lot of options, a lot of talent on the board. Um, and definitely what I still consider to be potential first-line, first-pairing uh, talent available. Yeah. All right. So let, let's run through some of them. Let's make some cases. You want to you want to draft a couple guys to make the arguments for here? Yeah. So I think uh, the first guy I'd probably let's start with the guy you mocked, Lucas Raymond, because I think that he's a guy who, uh, if you look back all the way to the beginning of the year, uh, McKean's actually had Raymond ranked as the second player coming into this year. Uh, second overall ahead of Byfield. They had Byfield at three. They had Lucas Raymond at two. And he's kind of you know, gone between two and five in a lot of different uh, lists simply because, again, you didn't get a lot of exposure to him. And that probably sounds familiar um, given Detroit's experience with Moritz Sider last year where he was getting maybe four or five minutes a night some games uh, in Adler-Mannheim. And so it was tough to get a great read on Raymond. But when you dig into, you know, some of the statistics uh, a little bit more, when you look at what he did uh, for his SHL team, when he was on the ice at even strength, his team scored 65% of the goals. That's outstanding. And again, the third best league in the in the world right now. Relative to his teammates, he was plus 8.5% there. So again, it wasn't just the fact that he was playing on such a good team, which he was playing on a good team. Um, but even relative to his teammates, he was still you know performing at a high level. Uh, and so I, I think he's an outstanding two-way player, dogged after the puck, 
I think if you brought him over here to Detroit, he's a guy that uh, a lot of people would immediately fall in love with. Here's why I mocked Raymond to the Red Wings last night. They need, and they needed, and they continue to need, a game changer. They thought they were going to have a chance, or, or at least there was some thought there's a 50% chance they were going to have a chance uh, at drafting one of those guys in the top three who was going to make it kind of obvious for them, I think. They're not going to have that privilege. Now they have to get a little risky. But I think Raymond is the guy who he might have some risk because, you know, eight, nine minutes a night, that does not leave you with really a confident sample size. But he does have a skill set that is crazy. He has an international track record to back him up. And I think if you look at the profiles of the guys who maybe have looked like shocking picks on draft day and then have turned out near that top of the draft to, to be real um, home run picks, you're talking about your Kale McCars, your Elias Petterson's, and your Moritz Siders, all of them have had some risk in, in, in varying degrees. Kale McCarr was coming from the Alberta Junior Hockey League uh, because he was going to go play college at UMass. Elias Petterson was playing in the Allsvenskan. Moritz Sider was playing you know, minimal minutes in the DEL. And so I think when you look at picks that, you know, outside that top two or three kind of lock range that have seemed to work out, and I don't want to count the chickens on Moritz Sider yet because he hasn't made the NHL, but nonetheless, you know, I think the fact that Lucas Raymond's role was so small in Forlunda maybe obscures just how good a talent he is. And, I, you know, I, I, I think that from a need standpoint, he, you know, the best player available is what they got to draft. But, you know, as Steve Eisman said last year, they need the best player available and they need that person to be able to change the game on offense for them. Raymond's hockey sense, his skill, he's going to be able to run their power play. He's going to be able to make plays from the wing. To me, that's why I had him in the mock last night. And I think he's the home run swing, takes a little bit of a risk, but there is the likelihood at this point that the SHL is going to resume before the draft. If Lucas Raymond comes back and has a real role, let's say he's in the top six, let's say he's playing 15 minutes a night, let's say he's getting close to a point a game in the first month of the SHL season before the draft, does that quell the concerns? To me, I think with the track record, it, it maybe should. Yeah, I mean, to me, there shouldn't really be all that many concerns. I think some people um, are a little bit nervous about taking a guy that high who didn't get a ton of minutes. Again, remember, this is the third best league in in the world. And and so this is a 18-year-old kid. I mean, he just turned 18 in March. So it's not like uh, he should instantly be having all the minutes. And it's a very different league from the DEL. I'd say it's arguably twice as good of a league as the DEL. So kind of set that aside when you're looking at Stutzla versus Raymond here. Um, to me, when I, I watch Raymond, and I'm going to make this from a stylistic comparison and not necessarily saying that this is what he achieves, you know, a guy he sort of reminds me of is Marion Hosa in the sense of that two-way high offensive IQ, but dogged back checker, dogged four checker. He's going to get after you. He doesn't have Hosa's size, so it's a 6'2", 210. You know, Raymond's a little bit on the smaller side at 5'10", 170, but I think he has that, that type of game. And so that's the kind of player that can very much change how good your offense is. Imagine adding another guy like that, you know, to Anthony Mantha, who's already becoming a very great two-way hockey player, and Dylan Larkin, another great two-way hockey player. You're starting to build the types of players that uh, I think Detroit really, really needs, the guys that can impact all areas of the game, all facets of the game. And that's what I think separates Raymond, for me, from a guy like Tim Stutzla is I don't know that Stutzla really has that same defensive kind of thought to his game that can certainly be learned. It can certainly be taught. Larkin didn't come in with that either. Um, but that being said, that's what I think Raymond has right now that offers a dynamic that Detroit, you know, really hasn't had consistently uh, or hasn't consistently been able to put on the ice in the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, the other thing is like, when you're when you're looking at information gaps, like the, obviously there's connections all around the hockey world, but the Red Wings have so many prospects that have come through for Lunda, whether it's Gustav Lindstrom, uh, whether it's this year with Elmer Soderblom and Gustav Berglund was there. The relationships, they should have a really good idea about the sides of Raymond that everyone else doesn't get to see. And, and I get what you're saying, like the what what we've seen is already enough to make him a top five prospect in this draft. But I think what 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 it, what goes on behind the scenes is where a team can really 
make the most out of this fourth spot. You get what I'm saying? Like just in terms of, of, of deviating from the consensus, the best way to do it is when you're able to find things out that other teams don't have quite as good a handle on. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying other teams don't scout for Lundewell, don't have prospects there, but I'm just saying the Red Wings in recent years have had a lot of players in that system. The development guys at minimum should have spent some time around for Lunda to know the habits a little bit. There'll be relationships there. I just wonder if maybe they're able to, you know, learn some things about Raymond through that process that that make it a little easier to, uh, you know, and I I get it. Like the the SHL production shouldn't be everything, but it's still like when you're drafting someone, you want the certainty. And I'm I'm just trying to think of a way that they maybe maybe does that help them overcome that information gap? I guess. Yeah, and I think that certainly helps. Like, and that's a lot of the reason why people have talked about Tim Stutzla because again, yeah. they were you know the the Red Wings were kind of comfortable with how Adler Mannheim was developing and, and you know playing their prospects and and same concept. Now you've got a lot of guys over in Frolanda. You've got a lot. You've had a lot of guys come out of the SHL. Um, you're very comfortable with how that development works. And again, you know the added factor that the SHL is probably going to have their normal season. Uh, in October, depending on how, you know, Sweden's uh, COVID-19 outbreak is at that time. But they're more likely to have a regular season than over here in North America. And so that's, again, another added piece to that. I think there really shouldn't be questions. But even if there were questions, this is a team that Detroit's comfortable with. This is an organization they're comfortable with. And therefore, I think kind of Raymond's a great player to take it for. Okay, lay out what your concern would be. Because I think if we just present the upside here, then we're going to make it sound like they've got you know, five or six can't miss options. So give me the reason that you would hesitate to take Lucas Raymond at four. I think the biggest reason to hesitate on Raymond is, you know, when you're watching him kind of play a little bit, you have to, I guess, make sure that sometimes he doesn't get lost uh, on some of the shifts towards the periphery um, and, and towards the perimeter. You want to make sure he's still consistently attacking the middle of the ice. You want to make sure he's able to get to those spaces You want to make sure he fills out his core and his legs a little bit more. So, again, making sure that he's got access to to developing that kind of core and and leg strength to allow him to protect the puck a little bit better. Um, That's kind of the biggest thing that separates, uh, you know, the guy I threw out as a comp, uh, Marion Hosa, from him is no one really protected the puck as well as Hosa. And, I mean, when Detroit had guys like Hosa, Zetterberg, and Datsuk, you're talking about arguably – you know, three of the best players at protecting the puck. And that's because they had such incredible lower body and core strength that they could do that. So I think that's another thing you want to make sure that, you know, Raymond's able to take care of getting the gym and work on. Um, But there are some times where I think, you know, some of the different scouts have have remarked that he can get a little bit lost on the perimeter, a little bit lost in the periphery. I'm not, again, not super concerned with it because when you're playing nine minutes a night, you're talking about maybe, 10 or 11 shifts in a game. And so you can really lose your rhythm and flow um, over the course of a game. But that is probably the biggest thing to be watching um, as he develops over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think the physicality really matters in in order to to get to the the middle of the ice, and it's 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 great to set up plays from the flank on the power play, and it's super important, and, and it can really uh, change the game. But what what is a complete game changer is when you can do it from anywhere on the ice and not having to be limited to the perimeter. Um, and I think that the strength is really important to that. And and I think so. If if you're going to draft Lucas Raymond at number four, you want to know that it's not just going to be from making plays from space from the outside in you you want to know that he's strong enough that he's going to be able to to play in the middle not necessarily down the middle in like a center sense but but get to the middle of the ice so that he can score so that he can make plays and strength I think is 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 the key to to having that confidence as well as just seeing him in more game action like I I do wonder if he played you know three four more minutes a night this year if he's not kind of more firmly cemented in that um in that conversation yeah, I, I completely agree. I think just the the big issue is just not seeing enough minutes from him. And and who who's to say what really happens here? But I mean, his production and kind of ice time in the SHL is, is roughly comparable to what William Nylander had to deal with in his draft eligible year. And I mean, Nylander was, you know, a goal, six assists, seven points in 22 games for Moto back in 2013, 2014. Uh, and Raymond's here at four goals, 10, 10 points and, and 33 games for for Lunda this year. I'm not saying that that's like the right uh, exact comparison to make, but it's a similar situation. And I do wonder if you get kind of some of that blossoming the following year and and years after as Nylander kind of developed for Toronto. So, 
you know, I think that's the biggest reason why people just aren't as comfortable with him. The, the the thing I would say is just like away from the puck game also really important. I, I agree with you about, you know, I've, I've seen the clips of the back checks and the stick lifting, but that's also one thing that can really round out a game. Because if you're, if you're a pure offensive player, this is something that Jeff Blaschel said that I think is, is dead on. It takes so much offense to overcome not having good defense. And I'm not saying he doesn't have good defense. I, I certainly heard the stats you were citing earlier, but I just think it's important to keep showing that you're going to be a two-way player because then you don't have to be a 100-point player in order to, to make it work, right? Like you can be a, a really good player uh, with, with a little bit lower offensive uh, threshold as long as you're, you're contributing all over the ice. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, a guy who kind of fit that bill to a T was Thomas Tatar for Detroit, and he didn't necessarily get the same appreciation in Detroit. But, uh, you know, now in Montreal, he was almost a point-per-game player while still having substantial offensive uh, and defensive impacts. And so he's a guy that kind of flew under the radar in terms of his ability to control the game. And it wasn't all just because he was a 100-point player. It's because he was very good positionally when his when he was on the ice. He had the puck. Um, and I think that's what you're looking for from a guy like Raymond to kind of follow in the same type of shoes as a guy like Hosa. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So let's do another one. So, I mean, if we're, again, removing Byfield, Lafreniere, and, and Stutzla from the board, then I think the next natural guy uh, to talk about is Cole Perfetti based on Bob McKenzie's list. Uh, and so I think he's an outstanding uh, center. He's, he's again, not a huge center, but he's well-built, 5'10", 185 pounds. And, you know, I think, Max, you'll probably have some good insight on this. Uh, but really, the biggest thing to me that stood out was when he got cut from the World Junior team, he just turned his game to another level. While everyone was at the World Juniors, you know, guys like Rossi and Byfield and, and uh, those guys were all playing over there. Perfetti went back and just absolutely tore up the OHL. He had 57 points in his final 29 games, uh, dating back to you know when he was cut from the World Juniors team. And and truly, he he seems to have probably one of the highest offensive IQs of any player uh, this year. I think if you look at Craig Button's rating, he gave his hockey IQ I think a six out of five. Which when you asked Craig, uh, you know who is he giving six out of fives to? You know he gave a six out of five to Connor McDavid skating. So. If you're assuming his scale is relatively standard, that's kind of the the level of, of Perfetti's thought process and, and uh, decision making. And really, you know, he was just absolutely outstanding in the OHL this year. In other years, he'd probably be a top three pick, but this year uh, he may be available even as late as five or six. So uh, I really think he's a complete two way player. So here's something on Perfetti that I I was talking to. Uh, someone from Saginaw this week, and I'll I'll have more on that for everybody in in the athletics soon. I I he the person told me about this game where they were playing against Kingston, and they were down four to zero in the third period. Kingston, not one of the better teams in the OHL. Saginaw obviously is, but nonetheless, Perfetti took over that game. They were down four zero. His line scored five goals in the last sixteen minutes, and they won five to four. I get that it's the OHL and that stuff is easier to do, but I think to me like that's the kind of like that's the wow factor, right? That's the like this guy can take over a game, and I think what you're saying about the hockey sense, uh, that's a sen- like that's the kind of carrying trait that you can have. So you combine these things, you combine the 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 hockey sense, you combine the puck skills, you combine this competitiveness to go take over a game. These are all big selling points, and especially if you believe that Cole Perfetti can stay at center. And I know skating is kind of the like the, the the speed is kind of the question, but he's also a player who, if you're that smart, can you slow the game down to your level so that you don't have to be chasing it? Um, to me, I, I think that can work, and especially if you view him as a center, I think Perfetti should be viewed as a very real candidate for this spot too. Yeah, I completely agree. And and again, you know, I think the skating piece, uh, I think you bring up a great point there, Max. Like obviously the concern or the quote unquote knock on Perfetti is he's not necessarily an elite skater. I think that trait can sometimes get overvalued or over-exaggerated because you're absolutely right. And the guys who can actually control the pace of the game, uh, you don't have to be the guy that flies up and down the ice Uh, with top speed acceleration, you can be a guy like Henrik Zetterberg, who wasn't that great of a skater, but everybody played at his pace. You can be Pavel Datsuk. Everybody played at his pace. Um, That's not to say neither of those guys weren't great skaters, but they weren't, you wouldn't come up and say, these guys are elite skaters by any sense. And I'm 
also trying to avoid making a direct comparison saying Perfetti's uh, skill levels on their <laughs> their skill level. But all of that being said, I think that's what you're looking for from a guy like Perfetti with his IQ kind of being off the charts, his ability to control and dictate the pace of the game. I do think he is a guy that could have that kind of impact on the ice. He can dictate and control what's going on. And again, a lot of people um, you know, for, forget about Perfetti in this kind of draft when you have guys like Rossi and Byfield who have scored just through the roof. I mean, Perfetti's scoring numbers are better than Steven Stamkos' scoring numbers uh, in their draft-eligible years, just to say that out loud. I mean, it's better than... Uh, you know, what Stamkos put together, and it's almost on par with what Jonathan Tavares and, and Taylor Hall did. So this is the kind of caliber player that you're getting uh, at potentially fourth overall, if not even a little bit later. Um, and again, the reason why he's not discussed in the same light is because you have two other guys from his league who scored at an even higher pace than he did. Um, but really, I think Perfetti's a guy who can offer you so many different things, can play center, can play wing. So he could be the answer to Detroit needing that another either top six center or could slide up uh, to play on the top level wing and work with a guy like Philip Sedina. Yeah, I mean, I, the the book on Perfetti is basically that once he's in the ozone, like he might pick your opponent apart. And, and that's got to be appealing for Detroit. I mean, I think the, you know, I, the, the concern that we've kind of talked about or the knock, like you said, would be the skating. But once you're in the O-zone, like the, the north-south speed no longer matters that much. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is when you're looking at a guy like uh, Perfetti, he was absolutely outstanding at getting the puck into the O-zone. So for those of you that follow Will Scouch, um, who is, does a lot of tracking of these players, and the handful of games of Perfetti that he tracked, uh, Perfetti was able to transition the puck into the offensive zone with possession 81% of the time he tried to do it. And so that number is only right behind Marco Rossi, who's at 82% for players out of the OHL. And so he, he once he gets it there, again, it's, it's basically game over. I mean, the guy averaged four shots a game. You know, he, when he was on the ice, his team had a 70% goals for percentage at even strength, which was, you know, 20% better than when he was off the ice. So I really think he's a dynamic player that could just controls every aspect. And uh, he shouldn't be thought of as an afterthought because he is an exceptional player in his own right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, should we do one more today? And then, or we could, we got time for a couple more. It's, it's early still. Yeah. So I think we can't walk away from this without talking about Marco Rossi, right? You know, we, we, we got to talk about Rossi. And so, again, the knock on Rossi is his size at five foot nine. Um, I will say that I think he is built unlike a lot of other five foot nine players. This is not a guy who's, you know, five foot nine, 150 pounds. This is a guy who's five foot nine, 185 pounds. And so he's sort of built um, very similarly to, you know, some of the other strong core lower body strength centers that uh, can really control the puck. Um you know, when they when they have it and they're very difficult to take the puck away from, and he's very good about getting the puck back. So to me, I think Marco Rossi has the potential to be the second best player in this draft class. I think I've said that multiple times. Uh, you know, the, the things about him that you have to consider, you have to consider the size at five foot nine. Is he going to be able to, you know, compete at the NHL level from a reach standpoint, from being able to pressure uh, other players, the skating has to be just a little bit better because of that. Um, I don't necessarily have those concerns, but those are concerns that people have. Uh, the other thing is is how much of his production is related to the fact that he's one of the oldest players in this draft with a September birthday. Um, I think that's also a valid concern to have. I think in some of the work I've done, those early birthday players in September, October, November uh, tend to outscore the other players by about 0.15 points per game. Uh, strictly related to the fact that they're more uh, developed than the other guys uh, in the rest of the draft class. And so even if you knock 0.15 points per game off of him, he's still a two-point-per-game player uh, in the OHL, which there have been 10 of those in the last uh, 20 years. And so he's still an absolutely unreal talent. To me, he offers you the complete package at at four. And if he's there at four and you're willing to overlook the size and take a take a shot on him, I think he could potentially be the guy from a work ethic standpoint from just that compete level that the Red Wings have kind of valued over the last couple of years. Uh, to me, he's a guy who would be an absolutely wonderful addition. 
Yeah, my, my reason that I'm not worried about the age thing is that it was still only his second year in the OHL. Like, one of the things about players who tend to be overagers, and this would apply to Alexi Lafreniere, is it's their third year in the league. Like, you're, you should dominate, right? Like, it, you should be incredible in that league because you're, you're so adjusted that you are the man in that league. Um, Marco Rossi, this was still only his second year, and so he was older, but but he's small, and it was only his second year in the league. I'm willing to overlook that that overage thing a little bit, uh, or not overage, but uh, late birthday thing a little bit. Um, what I, where I've kind of landed on Rossi, and I don't know how this happened. I don't know if it's just because we've been talking about him for so long or what. Is that I for for someone who is five nine. My concern with him isn't so much really the size because I, I've been very much, uh, you know, convinced that, that, that his strength and the low center of gravity balance, all that, like that can work with a player who's who's that uh, competitive and who's that kind of thick, I guess would be the word, at, at that size. My concern with drafting him at four might honestly be, is it too safe? Which is a strange thing to say about a 5'9 player, but is he the guy who's going to be a home run superstar? He, which is crazy to say about a guy who just averaged more than two points per game in the OHL, I guess. But uh, is it possible that he is more that kind of complete, he rounds out the top six, no doubt. I think he's a great one-two punch with Dylan Larkin. Um, but does he have kind of the home run upside of some of these other guys that we've talked about today? I don't know if I'm overthinking this just because we've been talking about Rossi so long and I've become so confident that he's he's going to be a player, but that's kind of weirdly where my head's at. Am I off base with that? I don't think you're off base at all. Like I said, I mean, you know, we've been talking about him since November being just this exceptional player that uh, we you should not dismiss him because of his size. I know this has been said over and over and over um, and there are other players that are potentially guys you do want to be a little bit more concerned about their size, given that they're not necessarily built the same way as him. But Rossi's just not that player. I just think he's an exceptional two-way player that can offer you absolutely everything that you're looking for. And if he slides at all, man, I think this guy's going to have a significant chip on his shoulder and be a guy that's, that's just going to be one of the top two players in this draft. But I guess what I'm asking is, is, is it possible that he's more just like a 65-point player with, with, with like really good odds of, of being like a, a difference maker? Is it possible he just doesn't have the same kind of production upside? as some And maybe maybe it doesn't matter because the defense is so good and face-offs are so valuable. The competitiveness is so important. Maybe that doesn't matter. But is it possible that he, he, he checks in more kind of where, where Dylan Larkin was at this season more so than like you, you talk about like Raymond or Perfetti and I think all of a sudden you're talking about guys who – have the potential to go much higher. Yeah, I mean, I think that's possible. To me, I think his instincts in the offensive zone yeah. put him more in that 70 to 75-point range. And again, maybe splitting hairs a little bit. But I do think he is a guy who could be close to the one-point-per-game range. Uh, he's probably not going to win you any Art Ross trophies. I don't think that's going to be the case. But uh, I don't think it's out of the question to maybe project a similar level of production as a guy like Braden Point. Uh, and that's a guy that I've kind of thrown around as a comparable, partly because of the fact that Braden Point is also five foot nine, um, and he actually slipped all the way uh, into the third round as a result of that, plus not having the same numbers that Rossi did this year. But all that being said, you know, Point he had one ninety point season last year, but he's kind of around that point per game pace, and so that's where I think Rossi could potentially find himself while also having that significant two way impact. Yeah. All right. That's fair. And then I will say, uh, I was watching uh, a Mark Masters interview with, with Marco the other day. You should go look for it on TSN. Just search Mark Masters, Marco Rossi interview. And, uh, you know, he asked him about like players and, and he asked him if he, how much like, you know, hockey highlights he watches. And, and Rossi goes, only Pavel Datsuk. So there's obviously <laughs> a little bit of a, a, of a good role model for a player who wants to be a highly skilled with great hands, great hockey sense, two way player. Uh, if that's the blueprint he wants to follow, then I think uh, I think that's a it's a wise uh, wise choice. Yeah, completely agree. So no questions from my standpoint in terms of how good Rossi could be. And, and like I said, uh, Detroit has to nail this pick. It, it may you know it may be a little uncomfortable to take a five foot nine center at fourth overall, but they I think he's a guy that's just going to be a big difference maker. Yeah, it's it's strange. Like it, it's it's strange for me that size. I mean, it is it is a question mark. You do wonder. Like, there's just not many five nine, like dominant centers in the league. 
But my my only question is like, is he is and if he if he's seventy five points, I think that's more than worthy of the number four pick, to be honest. So uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you're going to be very very happy with that. And again, points aren't everything. So if he's having those two way impacts for you, that's what matters. Yep, I think that's perfectly fair. Um, I'll also say I've got Corey's uh, Lucas Raymond scouting report up earlier, and um, I, I was talking about the strength of the middle. Corey does have kind of a section about how Raymond is not afraid of the the perimeter, so I did just want to throw that in there. I, I wasn't necessarily questioning that he like saying he was a perimeter player, but like as we were on the topic of strength, I was just kind of trying to highlight why that matters because because Raymond's such a skinny player. But just wanted to kind of throw that in there as a little uh, addendum. Absolutely. All right, uh, you want to do one more for today, or or, or what? Yeah, I think the last guy you got to round out with is Jamie Drysdale okay. because he's fourth on Bob McKenzie's list. He's the defenseman that, you know, potentially could go in the top four. And, you know, arguably he's he's a, one of the better defensemen that's been available in the draft the last couple of years. To me, if you flash back to last year's draft with Bowen Byram, I think Jamie Drysdale is, is definitely better than Bowen Byram. I think he's a much more, you know, offensively talented player. I think he's very, he's a very good skater. I think he does an excellent job, you know, transitioning the puck up the ice. He's uh, a great passer, uh, great vision. I think he's got all the tools you're looking for in a top pairing defenseman. So I think he's absolutely a reasonable player, you know, to take in that range. I think my preference, uh, you know, over the course of the year has been that I think the forwards available at uh, at four are a little bit more certain of reaching that potential uh, relative to Drysdale reaching that not that top pairing defenseman potential. But he's absolutely in the conversation there. Uh, and, you know, if you look over the last 20 years, uh, Drysdale scored the 11th most points per game of any OHL defenseman that's draft eligible. Um, you know, he's slightly behind a guy like Cam Fowler, Zach Bogosian, you know, guys who did go on to play in that kind of top pairing role for a little bit in their career. So to me, he's a he's a guy that has that potential, has that game uh, breaking ability a little bit from the back end, but uh, he certainly belongs in the conversation at four. He's got absolute wheels. And in the modern game, a mobile defenseman who who can play kind of the, the, the full game, use his feet, not just for offense, but to recover and to play defense, that matters. I mean, you're seeing more and more defensemen who who skating is just such a crucial trade. And I, you know, I'm not going to put him on the Quinn Hughes, Kale McCarr level. I don't, I don't think that's fair. But you're seeing those kinds of players more and more dictate the pace of play, be able to to move with the puck, move without the puck. You know, modern defenseman I think is like the most fair way to describe Jamie Drysdale. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what he is. And, and he's a guy that, again, has the capacity to, to be a game changer from the back end. And you see how much of an impact a guy like Quinn Hughes and, and, and Kale McCarr have had this year. They've been absolutely instrumental in making their team substantially better. And again, we'll caution that you shouldn't have that same expectation for uh, Drysdale. But that being said, I do think he is one of the better defensemen in the last couple of years, at least going back to Zadina's draft. Um, you know, he kind of slots right in with a guy like Evan Bouchard and, and and Noah Dobson and those kinds of players. So to me, he's a guy you take in the top 10. Uh, you certainly can consider him at four because I do think he's the best defenseman in this draft. Um, that being said, I'm a, I'm a little bit more apprehensive just because I don't have that same feeling of certainty or I don't have that same confidence level that he reaches that level versus the guys that we just talked about in Rossi Perfetti and Raymond. Yeah, and, and teams have messed up in the past by just trying to take like the best defenseman in the draft really high. Like there's it it's you have to really believe it. And and I think, you know, I think Drysdale's gonna be a really good player, but you know, you have to weigh weigh these things against one another. It's not just in a vacuum. Would you like Jamie Drysdale? If you had a vacuum, if you could do it all randomly, you, you take every one of these guys that we're talking about, but you only get one. You have to pick between them. And so, yeah, my concern with 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 Drysdale is almost similar to the Rossi one. Is like, is it a true home run swing at number four? Because he might be a really really good defenseman, but how good does he have to be? Like, or, or, or sorry, what is it going to take for him to be good enough that that it's like a you know, it, it's on the potential impact level of some of these other guys we're talking about. Like, does he have to be a 40-point defenseman, a 50-point defenseman? What does it have to be? And it's not all measured in points. Defense matters here, especially for a defenseman. But 
assume you know this is a 5'11 player and I'm not saying that doesn't mean he can't play defense but I am saying it probably means he's going to have to generate quite a bit of offense yeah and and, and that's the thing is we'll we'll kind of have to see one of the things that I've been trying to tease out I haven't really formalized this part of the analysis is but when looking at you know defensemen and, and even forwards to a certain extent it's actually a little bit easier to identify the quality players by their draft minus one years as opposed to their draft year. And that's some some of that has to do with the fact that you're kind of looking for that level of consistency from draft minus one to that draft year. And that's kind of demonstrating that this is a player that's highly skilled, has been able to have that impact all the way across, um, as opposed to the guy that draft minus one year really wasn't anywhere. And then all of a sudden shows up out of nowhere in their draft year. That's a guy like Jack Quinn this year. So that's why he's been a little bit of a, a red flag for me as well. Drysdale, you know, if you look at all the defensemen that have played in the OHL for the last 20 years, Drysdale's 13th in draft minus one scoring at 0.63 points per game. Um, And that's right on par with a guy like Aaron Ekblad, who is 14th at 0.63 points per game. But some of the other defensemen, if you look towards the top of the list, Drew Doughty, Ryan Ellis, Tony D'Angelo, Alex Petrangelo. Those are the guys that are in the top five when you're looking at this over the last 20 years. And so, it's, it's potentially a little bit more indicative that those guys are maybe in a different tier than what Drysdale will be. That being said, this is by no means any sort of concrete analysis at this point. It's still stuff that I'm I'm working through, but there there may be a little bit of a gap there, and maybe that's that's kind of factoring into me saying that I don't know that Drysdale is going to reach that uh, that tier, but you know, a guy like Aaron Ekblad certainly did. We've seen plenty of defensemen in recent years who who have managed to be really good, like no doubt top pair players without being premier scorers. And I, I think that is fair to note. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, is Drysdale that, that archetype of player? I don't know. Could he become that? Probably. But again, that's where a lot of what a player becomes after the draft is mostly related to how the team chooses to develop them as opposed to what we know right now evaluating a 17, 18-year-old kid. Yeah. All right, I can't help myself. Let's just do Holtz and Sanderson here to wrap it up because it feels weird being incomplete without those two guys who I think will factor into this conversation uh, between now and and whenever the draft happens. We can go a little quicker, though. So Holtz, you know, the the case for him is he's probably the best pure goal scorer in the draft. He had a great scoring season in the SHL uh, as an under-18 player. That's probably only going to, as the SHL resumes, like I would expect that that only gets more impressive in September. Um, you know, it, I don't think that this is like a, you know, a huge knock per se, but, you know, the, the, the tendency with pure scorers is like, are they complete players? And I, I don't see that as being a huge knock on holes. I haven't seen, you know, huge questions over that. Like when, when Corey did his grades, on Alexander Holtz, it wasn't just like this is one big heavy shot. Although he he does have a, a, a huge grade on Holtz's shot, um, but he's also got you know a sixty five on his puck skills, a sixty on his hockey sense. So it, it those are above average to high end grades on those traits. So I I, I think that Holtz kind of has a, a real case here too as being an offensive game changer. He's he's your guy if you want a forty goal scorer. He's your probably best bet to get it in this draft. And the Red Wings haven't had one of those in quite a while. Yeah, I completely agree. To me, my my biggest concern is his all around game, and I think that's what separates Lucas Raymond from Alexander Holtz. I think Holtz is easily, without a doubt, the best goal scorer in this draft. I think if you put him in the OHL this year and you you took Jack Quinn out and you put Holtz in, Holtz scores 70. I think he's that good of a goal scorer. I mean, you don't often have uh, 18-year-old kids shoot 17% in the SHL. Like, that's absolutely ridiculous. But when you kind of dig into his numbers a little bit more, so his 5-on-5 even strength goals for percentage is an even 50%. Relative to his teammates, he's actually minus 5.34%. So when he is off the ice, his teammates are actually controlling goal scoring a little bit better than when he's on the ice. Um, In Will Scouch's tracking data, Holtz had a 5-on-5 Corsi 4 percentage of 40%, which is by far the worst of any of the guys that are kind of projected to go in the top 10. None of the other guys are kind of uh, have a a Corsi 4 percentage less than 50%. So that's certainly concerning, um, you know, with Holtz's two-way game. That being said, he's definitely one of the best goal scorers we've had in, in the draft years in recent years. My concern, though, is do you want to take 
a Phil Kessel-type player at fourth overall, the guy who's going to give up almost as much as he gets, uh, but he's going to give you 40. That's my concern. That's I the don't... concern I'm going to lay out. Okay, here's the thing. I, I really respect Will as, as a scout, as an analyst, and as I – Seven game sample size is what this tracking is. That's an international tournament. The the biggest knock people love to throw is that people prioritize international tournaments and small samples. That Corsi number is seven games. Like so I am tell you, not though, putting is, that on him. So Corsi tends to reach its peak predictiveness somewhere around fifteen games, but it's already within about eighty to eighty five percent of its peak predictiveness by seven games. So. It's not far off and it's not a stretch because this is not just looking at goal scoring, which is what a lot of people tend to do with a seven game sample. This is looking at, you know, roughly uh, 700 shots that have happened, you know, in the course of seven games. And then again, isolating what Holtz was on the ice for. So is it a perfect sample? No. Uh, Is it still a reasonably useful sample? I think yes. And again, when it sort of lines up with his even strength goals for percentage, that's what's even a little bit more concerning for me. I don't know. Like, like look at Corsi numbers for rookies in any pro league. I mean, the, the, the goals for thing is even strength. He's a power play beast because he's got a rocket of a shot. Like, they're talking about a rookie in a pro league. I'm not going to knock it. Like, like I agree, Corsi matters. But just for, for a 17-year-old in a men's pro league as a rookie... I am not putting too much stock in that. I'm just not. It's it's fair. I think the uh, I think the things also come out when you watch them though. I just don't see the same two way game as Lucas Raymond. And again, if you want to apply the seven game sample to Raymond in, in Wells tracking, he's 58 percent for five on five Corsi four. And so again, it, it uh, that kind of jives with the even strength goals four percentage that you know we've been able to tease out. And and that's where that's my biggest concern with with Holtz. I think he's going to give you a pure goal scoring standpoint. But I think it's more of a Phil Kessel type player than it is a guy that's going to be Mark Stone in score 40. So here's, here's what Corey's written. Uh, it says, off the puck, he's fine. He competes well enough, but he's not an overly physical player and can be a bit of a perimeter player due to how much he leans on his shot. So maybe that is a little bit more of a of a critique than I was kind of internalizing there uh, prior to the show. But, you know, again, I, I just think with a player this young, that's the easy part. You, you convince a guy to... to, to to, to play a little harder off the puck and go to the harder areas. Like Holtz is pretty built, right? Like he's six foot, 192 is what Corey's got him at. Like, you know, I, I just think those are things you can coach into a player and, and you know, he, he's your guy who's got that goal scoring upside. But I get it. You know, this is this goes back to what we were just talking about with Drysdale. You're picking these players against each other. And so Holtz has the statistical track record, but... You know, if you're picking him against Raymond, I, I think there's probably a pretty good case to go with Raymond for for the upside. But, um, you know, I, I would not rule Holtz out of this conversation. I think he's a really good prospect. He's one of the guys who has the chance to, to become one of these players who, when you look back on this draft, you're saying, holy crap, that those guys got him at five or six or seven or four or whatever. Like, I think he's one of those guys. So, um, I'll, I'll grant that. You know, I, I, I don't know that I had quite internalized that there wasn't a... Um, you know, a rock solid endorsement on the complete game, but uh, I, I also plan to watch more. And he's one of the guys who I still need to make a couple phone calls about. But um, I, I would put him squarely in this conversation. Now we'll go to Jake Sanderson, where I expect an even more vociferous disagreement here. <laughs> yeah, I mean Sanderson has really shot up the list over the last kind of few months, simply because he had a really solid back half of the year. Uh, you know, with the U.S. national team, and so. He's got the size. He's a great skater. That's a lot of what people look for in defensemen. Uh, to me, the the biggest holdup on Sanderson is, you know, typically when you're trying to project these first-round defensemen and, and some other defensemen, there was some work done by Reese Jessup, and now this was more specific to the CHL leagues than it was a global analysis of defensemen. But one of the things that he found to be kind of the best predictor of a defenseman sticking in the NHL and being successful was how much they scored in their draft year. And while points kind of stink as a uh, metric by itself in the NHL, if it's a useful metric at kind of identifying who's going to be long-term and successful at the NHL level, then I think it's worth noting. So definitely not going to discount all of the attributes that Sanderson has. He's a great skater, good offensive awareness. Um, He definitely didn't play on as talented a team Uh, as the U.S. national team was last year. This year's crop was just not as good and not even really close. 
Um, and his metrics, when you look at them a little bit more, you know, five and five even strength goal for goals four percentage of sixty percent. You know, relative to his teammates, that's plus four percent. That's solid numbers. Um, so I, I think you're going to be taking him more so on the attributes uh, that he's got. But I don't know that he's got the truly elite potential. Again, it's the same conversation I just had about Drysdale on that. That's just my biggest concern with them is, are they going to be able to demonstrate themselves as top pairing defensemen uh, at the NHL level? Because even if you get a second pairing defenseman out of it, uh, I don't know that that's good enough at fourth overall. Yeah, I, I agree. At fourth overall, second pairing wouldn't be good enough. My contention would be I think he has a chance to be first pairing. And uh, I was not real familiar the last time we talked about Jake, so I've, I've, I've learned a little bit more in the last week or so. And here's here's some of the things that I'm that I'm leaning on here. Number one... This is a July birthday player, so it's not surprising to me at all that that the you know the late season come on happened potentially for a reason. Like you'll remember uh, that a, a player who's drafted. I, I know you're talking about it's, it's maybe more indicative when it's a player who is really old per se than really young for the class. But to me, I think it makes sense that a guy who is just 17 still uh, didn't have kind of his. Uh, momentum pick up until the second half of this season when you look at the scoring in the ohl 14 and 19 games for a defenseman that's still fine that's still pretty good uh and to me when, when i look at when you deduct the 19 ushl games from the ntdp schedule i'm not sure if it's exactly like this or if there's international games involved in this or not but the rest of it is 15 points in 28 games and certainly some of that is against a college schedule if you're talking about a 17 year old defenseman in their draft year with 15 points in 28 games against college competition, I think all of a sudden we, and I, I know it might not all be college. I don't know all the specific inner workings of that, but, but college is definitely part of that. Uh, if you were talking about that as, as just in itself, then all of a sudden I don't think people would be knocking the numbers at all, especially when this is a guy whose profile is that he is a rock shutdown defenseman who can log tough minutes. Like, I, you know, so I I get the point that you know, and I I will stand by what I've said earlier, which is that you need to take a home run swing. Is Sanderson a home run swing? I don't know, but I think he absolutely merits being in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think he definitely belongs in the conversation. You know, the, the question I kind of have is. Again, are you going to get the guy that can be that, you know, top pairing player that's, you know, truly outstanding? Or are you going to get a guy that's more maybe like Kevin Shattenkirk, which is still a very useful player uh, in, in his own right? He did play in some top pairing minutes when he was in the Rangers, when he was with the Lightning, um, but maybe he's better suited on the second pair. And not saying that that's going to be the case here. That's just my biggest reservation with Sanderson. Um, and so my, my thought at four is, if you're going to swing for the fences and you got to make sure you connect, make sure that it's a guy that you have a reasonably confident or you're reasonably confident that he's going to at least hit his floor and that his floor is high enough for you. And, and that's just the biggest concern I have. So part of this might also depend on what you're defining as a top pair defenseman, because if, if you're just talking about a guy who's playing 22 plus minutes a night, then that's one thing. But but if you're talking about kind of an impact that would make him one of the top 45 to 50 defensemen in the league, um, you know, statistically, then then that's another question. And certainly if you're drafting a player that high, you probably want him more like the top 30. But Corey Proman did a, a yeah. few polls. Yeah, you probably want a guy that's a top 45 impact, not right. necessarily a guy that plays 22 minutes. Right, yeah. So, so Corey did polls here uh, just of the Twitterverse of, of whether – you know, if Jake is Jake Sanderson worth a top five pick if he becomes as good an NHL player as, and I'll I'll read you the three names and I want your answers. Is he worth top five pick if he becomes as good as Jacob Truba? Uh, no. Is he worth a top five pick if he is as good a player as Hampus Lindholm? Uh, still, you know, Lindholm. I think in the last couple of years has has sort of slid down a little bit, but a few years back, I think he was a top pairing defenseman for sure. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. I'll give. I'll take Lindholm. And then this one, I think, if you if you take Lindholm, I imagine you'll do this one. Is he worth top five pick if he becomes Ryan McDonough? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. McDonough is an outstanding player. Yeah. So I, I think that shows that if those are the conversations, that's that's what it's going to take to make it worth it. I think those are are pretty accurate results. I think in in Corey's polls, the public opinion was no for Truba, no for Lindholm, yes for McDonough. 
Um, I would probably lean yes for Lindholm, but you know, I, I, I recognize that that's a, that's kind of a personal opinion toss up kind of thing. So I'm not necessarily making that case, but at some point I will write an article that makes the case. Cause I'm going to do that for all of these guys. And, uh, I, I think people should get their mind. Cause I know Sanderson has been kind of a public, people just have been throwing shots at him in, in the public sphere. And I think it's part of it is because he came on late and he was so far out of that conversation. And it seems like this kind of classic, uh, defenseman shooting up the, up the draft board or whatever, but um, there's something to this too. And I, I think when, when NHL teams are building a team, it is really hard to find your cornerstone defenseman. If you don't think Jake Sanderson's your cornerstone defenseman, that's fine. You don't have to take him at four and you shouldn't take him at four if you don't think that. But I'm just saying when someone has this much momentum, um, I'm inclined to take a little bit of notice, especially when it's not someone who I had been following all that closely um, until recently. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a great point. I think, you know, one of the, again, another reservation I have going back to what I said earlier is, you know, I think by the time you're, you're hitting the middle of their draft year, you should have a pretty reasonable assumption or understanding of what that player is going to be. And these late, mo- these late movers are always the guys that make me nervous. Like a couple of years back, it was Barrett Hayton and Jesper Kotkaniemi. And while Kotkaniemi had a good rookie year, he regressed substantially uh, in his sophomore year. And so, some of those late movers make me a little bit nervous because to me, it's it's kind of ignoring the prior information you already have and kind of overvaluing the most recent information when it's really kind of be a, a Bayesian approach where you're kind of updating what you already think about the player as opposed to completely shifting to this new opinion. So that's, that's kind of my biggest nervousness with a guy like Sanderson is these late movers up the board. I do need to go back and look at this, but they're the guys that kind of scare me the most because I think it's based on only the most recent evidence and not necessarily factoring in the whole picture. Hayton, meanwhile, looks pretty good, though. Hayton does look pretty good. And and we'll see once he hits a, you know, a more consistent role at the NHL level, how he continues to develop. Uh, I do think Kakaniemi was, was rushed to a certain extent. But yeah. uh, Hayton, you know, looks good. And I mean, we'll see. Uh, if it's worthy and justifi- justifiable to have him kind of at, at fifth overall. But to me, I don't think there should be a ton of movement uh, by guys rocketing from 20 to 5 mm-hmm. uh, or 20 to 3 even within the course of a half season. That's just kind of a personal belief I have that you should have known that already and we shouldn't be updating this based on a half season of a player. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't even bother uh, asking you to make the case for Askarov. Uh, I know you, you, <laughs> you won't want to do that. And, and frankly, I don't think there's a very good case for it either. So we will skip that one. Um, I'm going to stand by my pick that I made in the staff mock draft. I'm going to stand by with Raymond. I just think with this pick, the Red Wings need to be focused on home run potential. And and I made we, we made the case for those six guys because we want to illustrate that this is not – you, you can't just make this binary and saying if it's one of these two things, it's good, and if it's one of these other four things, it's bad or whatever, or even something we didn't talk about, it's bad, because there's information gaps, and some of these things are really close, and some of them come down to preference and, and all kinds of factors. But for me, the Red Wings, this Red Wings pick needs to let give them the best chance of landing a game changer. You can take that one of two ways. You can take it from the best chance side, or you can take it from the highest upside side. I think Raymond has the upside to be an absolute game changer. That is who I mocked. I'm going to stand by that. Who would you take at four right now? Yeah, I think in order for me, it's probably, you know, Marco Rossi, Lucas Raymond, Cole Perfetti, uh, then Jamie Drysdale, Alexander Holtz, uh, and then Jake Sanderson of the guys that we just talked about. It'd be in that order. I do think the differences are razor thin between Rossi, Raymond, and Perfetti. And then I think there's a little bit more of a gap when you get to Drysdale, which is razor thin between Holtz. And then I think there's a little bit more of a gap before you get down to Sanderson. So that's kind of how I would structure it. But really, any of those guys is defensible at four. Uh, I just think it's all about your certainty level in terms of what they're going to become. And and that's kind of where I lean on Rossi the most. So you talk about that razor thin margin. And I don't want to run too long here because I don't want to keep anybody uh, around too long. But where would you trade back to? And does the board to you, is it set up in a way that could make trading up reasonable? We only know one through eight at this point, but. Yeah, so we only know one through eight. And to me, there's not necessarily another team uh, that 
is desperate to take Jake Sanderson, but that's what I would be looking for is, is there a team that is desperate to take Jake Sanderson that's in the top 10? Because if you find that team and you're able to push them, you know, that team wants to flip up, you're maybe able to get another draft pick. Uh, I think that's the team you want to try and target. To me, in a perfect world, Detroit doesn't go any further than eight because if a team's going to jump up for Sanderson and we're reasonably confident that that Drysdale also goes in the top five, um, there's a chance that you have one of Perfetti, Rossi, and Raymond left. I believe Rossi was eight on Bob McKenzie's board or maybe seven. And so, you know, if he does slide into that range, that may be somewhere where you say, hey, if this guy's going to be here and you want to trade up for Sanderson, you know, let's let's make that deal. Um, but obviously, you know, with Detroit, you're kind of playing with fire to a certain extent. You got to make sure you land one of those game changing players. And and that's where it becomes a little bit tricky uh, to go too far back. So I don't think I'd go any farther back than eight uh, if possible, because you want to make sure you're still getting one of those top you know, forward players. Yeah. Yep. I I, I think that's fair. I, I to me, I think I, I don't want to trade back too much more than than seven if I'm a GM, just because I want to make sure that I have still have some choice and I'm not just taking the player that 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 falls, even if even if ultimately I'm okay with both options. So, um, I, I think I would be looking at. I think it's New Jersey at seven. That might be tough. They got so many picks in the first round. They might not have too much incentive to move up. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, New Jersey could be the team that that wants to move up because they have three first round picks. So, or as of they have three picks in the sense that if all of them get awarded to them, then then sure. Um, but that's potentially a team that does, you know, if there's a guy they really really like that they want to take, there may there may be the team that's willing to get to trade another first round pick. Uh, so we'll see. We will definitely see. Uh, but yeah, a, a big decisions awaiting the Red Wings one way or the other. I think, you know, going through that exercise of talking about the the case for everybody and, and the argument against everybody is important. I'm going to do it in a lot more depth, too, uh, in the coming weeks. I'll, I've got uh, lots of stuff coming on this. So I, I know probably a disappointing outcome for most of you out there listening. But, uh, you know, the, the the plus side, as Steve Eisman put it last night, is they're, they're going to get a good prospect, and that prospect is going to have a, a chance to become a really good player. That's the only thing you can take solace in. You have no choice but to take solace in that at this point. So, uh, you know, familiarize yourselves, and, and we'll, we'll help you do that on, on this on this podcast uh, and, and in writing in the, in the coming weeks. But thanks for listening today. I'm sure it was a, a bummer night for everybody on Friday. But uh, we'll stay with you here through through the long, long summer and long off season. Uh, yeah. So thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>